Welcome, uh, and uh, delighted to talk. Um, and I will be um, talking about evidence and talking about um, at least some of the themes and examples uh, in uh, a book I wrote uh, that Elizabeth mentioned uh, called The Proof uh, that has been out for a few months now. So I've been um, teaching evidence on and off for about 45 years. Um, it was one of the things I taught early uh, in my academic career. Um, unlike uh, what seems to go on uh, these days, um, I became an academic uh, right out of practice. Uh, no fellowship, no PhD, um, no writing. Um, uh, uh, no uh, clerkship right out of practice, and therefore uh, it was natural uh, that I would start teaching things that I uh, knew a little bit about from practice, and since I'd been a uh, trial lawyer in Boston for three years, uh, evidence was one of the things that I started teaching. Um, then I gave it up. Um, for some years um, to teach and write about the First Amendment, constitutional law and interpretation, um, and jurisprudence. Uh, and then about 20 years ago, um, five years or so before I um, came here, um, I started uh, teaching and writing about evidence again. Uh, now I mention this um, because of uh, two related events uh, that um, say something about evidence, uh, two related events uh, about my return to evidence uh, as a field. Uh, one, um, shortly after returning to it, um, I mentioned to a friend, a quite distinguished moral um, and legal philosopher, uh, and who earlier had been in my First Amendment class at the Harvard Law School, I mentioned to this um, philosopher, lawyer, um, friend that I was teaching uh, evidence, whereupon she said, and this is a direct quote, you are joking. Uh, uh, related to that, um, then uh, at about the same time, um, I had um, mentioned to the um, then dean of the Harvard Law School, uh, who now has another job, uh, I had mentioned to the then dean of the Harvard Law School um, that I wanted to teach evidence um, in that half of my uh, appointment that was at the law school rather than at the Kennedy School. I'd been teaching the First Amendment. Uh, I mentioned to her that I wanted to teach um, evidence, uh, whereupon she said, really? Uh, and then immediately she got on the phone with the associate dean while I was sitting there uh, before I could change my mind um, and said, um, Fred's in my office now. He said he wants to teach evidence. Let him teach it whenever he wants, wherever he wants, uh, in whatever form he wants, because we can't find any enough people uh, to teach the subject. Um, so both of these reactions reflect um, the common academic view um, that evidence is largely about a bunch of silly rules that you need to learn in order to take the bar exam, that you need to learn um, 
uh, for uh, some aspects uh, of practice, but not the kind of subject that would attract genuine um, intellectual interest. After all, what kind of intellectual or academic would be interested in a subject that has the hearsay rule with, depending on how you count, somewhere between 29 and 35 exceptions? Um, so, um, all of this um, reflects, as I said, um, what I think is a um, common view um, about uh, the subject. Um, but what changed my mind? Um, so one, um, the subject was b waking up. Um, the subject was becoming uh, deeper. The subject was becoming more intellectually and academically interesting. Um, in a number of ways. Um, one, uh, there was a considerable interest, uh, and it's still um, thriving, uh, in statistical evidence, the use of statistics, um, and a bunch of related issues, uh, depending on how much evidence you know or when you took an evidence course. Um, uh, this is the uh, general issue that often goes under the heading of the blue bus problem, uh, but there are related statistical issues that have attracted philosophers, statisticians, lawyers, and well as well um, that um, created a fair amount of genuine interest. Uh, indeed. Um, a bunch of leading philosophy journals these days uh, talk about statistical evidence. Um, second, there was an increased interest um, in a range of issues about experts and expert testimony. Uh, uh, some of this um, came out of the Supreme Court's Daubert decision. Uh, some of it um, came out of the increasing interest in a number of different uh, technical areas in which expertise became important. And one of the things that followed from expertise becoming important um, was a range of difficult and controversial questions about who's an expert. Um, so when I teach all of this, uh, uh, I'd like to at least introduce the subject of expert testimony um, by talking about phrenology. Uh, phrenology, um, for those of you uh, who don't consult a practicing phrenologist on a daily basis, um, is the domain um, that was wildly popular in the 19th century, uh, the domain in which um, phrenological experts claim to be able to determine um, your behavior, your personality, and a whole bunch of other things from the terrain of your skull. Um, and one of the interesting and important things about phrenology uh, is that at the time that phrenology was a big deal, uh, you could get advanced degrees in phrenology, there were institutes of phrenology, there were phrenological journals, um, there were awards in phrenology, uh, all sorts of um, trappings of academic uh, respectability surrounded phrenology. Uh, but despite the fact that all sorts of um, 
academic trappings, intellectual trappings, scholarly trappings surrounded phrenology, uh, and that it looked like an academic field, uh, that didn't detract from the fact that it was, as was subsequently discovered, that phrenology was, to use the appropriate technical term, crap. Um, that is, knowing the terrain of one's skull tells you nothing. Um, but what's interesting about it um, is that it illustrates the way in which uh, it's hard to determine who is an expert in, the in a field about which you know nothing. Um, judges face this problem, lawyers face this problem. Uh, how can you determine who the experts are in a field uh, if it is a field um, that you yourself uh, don't know anything about? So all of these um, issues um, were part of uh, what became discussed with some frequency um, starting a few years ago. Um, and the third thing I'll mention here in terms of um, the rebirth of evidence uh, as an academic and scholarly field as well as a field of great practical importance um, was increasing interest um, related to the area of expertise uh, in forensics. Um, serious thinking about forensics, serious thinking about those forensic techniques um, that were widely accepted uh, but turned out never have, never to have never been tested, um, turned out to be less reliable um, than we might think. Um, uh, so there was a great deal of interest in evaluating forensics, reevaluating forensics, looking at those forms of forensic um, evidence that include things like uh, bite marks and tire marks um, and uh, blood spatter patterns and so on and so on and so on, some of which were reliable uh, and some of which uh, were not, uh, all of which generated uh, important government reports um, and um, academic inquiry and so on. Um, so the other, but the other thing that re explained, uh, explains my uh, reinterest in evidence as a field um, was uh, an interest um, uh, in the way in which uh, evidence as a field, evidence as a subject was increasingly relevant outside the legal system. Um, that's what the book is all about. Uh, how can we think about evidence outside the legal system uh, and maybe use a little bit of what the legal system does and thinks about evidence to inform our thinking outside the legal system about evidence? Uh, obviously, questions of evidence have been um, front page news uh, at least since November of 2020. Um, uh, uh, and a related series uh, of questions. Who said what to whom uh, on January the 6th, 2021? Uh, all of these issues with some frequency are now talked about um, as evidentiary problem, but evidentiary problems. But there's a lot more than just the kinds of evidentiary problems that have recently become front page news. So let me just give a few examples. Um, one, um, familiar to a number of you in the room, room um, uh, 
question of evidence, was Thomas Jefferson the father of Sally Hemings' children? Uh, and one of the interesting things about this issue um, is that um, the, uh, not only does the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at Monticello say uh, yes to that question, but their answer to that question in their elaborate report about the question uh, and about evidence makes explicit reference to Bayesian statistics, uh, explicit reference to a, um, uh, the way in which one can do a statistical analysis or at least think in statistical terms and think in Bayesian incremental terms. Um, about how to think about the evidence for and against um, this proposition. This is entirely an evidentiary question. Uh, and it's entirely a factual evidentiary question. Uh, it's not an evaluative evidentiary question. Um, it's not um, a question uh, as a question of fact um, that uh, involves issues um, of disputed uh, morality or disputed politics, uh, although they obviously affect the factual inquiry. Uh, but basically, it is a purely factual inquiry uh, of use of evidence to try to come up with an answer about something to which we cannot um, be sure. Um, so um, similarly, um, Think about, uh, again, a current uh, evidentiary question. Do vaccines work? Um, do, uh, and not only do vaccines work in the context of COVID, but earlier, do vaccines work in the context of measles, the flu, um, and various other things? Once again, many people would say that we know that vaccines work, and some people would say that we know that vaccines don't work um, because they uh, purport to rely on experts. But then the question is, who are the experts and how do we know who the experts are? Uh, increasingly, in an area in which um, everybody claims to be an expert, um, the uh, actress Gwyneth Paltrow claims to be a lifestyle expert. Uh, I don't know what a lifestyle expert is. Um, I've got a lifestyle. Uh, I'm pretty happy with my lifestyle. Um, and I don't know um, why I would want to consult an expert in lifestyles, um, but still, uh, uh, we have lifestyle experts, we have experts on all sorts of other things, um, and it still presents the same kind of problem. Who are the experts and how do we know who the experts are? Um, one of the examples, uh, or one series of examples I talk about um, in the book uh, are examples about art authentication. Um, so uh, evidentiary problems. So. Uh, Art authentication, not art evaluation. Uh, not the question of whether um, Rembrandt was a better or worse painter um, than uh, Picasso, um, or whether Rembrandts are worth more or less than Picasso's, uh, but strict authentication questions. Um, so one of the ones that's talked about now is who painted um, a painting called Salvador Mundi. 
Uh, it's commonly attributed to Leonardo da Vinci, but of course we can't ask him um, whether he painted it or not. He's dead. Um, and with a lot of other uh, similar issues of art authentication, um, often the best evidence is unavailable, uh, even if we assume that asking him would be conclusive, which it might not be. Uh, but even if we assume that it would be conclusive, um, it would be hard to ask him. So um, there are disputes now that involve um, relying on potentially contested and actually contested expert judgments um, that rely on historical inquiry, um, that rely on uh, scientific examination um, of paint, uh, of brush strokes, uh, and all of this. Um, so let me talk about briefly about another uh, art example. Uh, in 1936 or 1937, uh, a man named Han um, Mergeren, Dutch, um, uh, painted a painting called Christ at Emmaus. And Christ at Emmaus um, was claimed um, to be a Vermeer. Vermeer uh, didn't paint very many paintings, uh, so this appeared to be a discovery uh, of a previously unknown Vermeer. Um, uh, von Mergen um, claimed that it was a Vermeer. Um, most museums agreed that this was a long-lost Vermeer. Uh, most of the Vermeer experts agreed that this was a long-lost Vermeer. And perhaps most importantly, um, the most famous and most rapacious art collector of the late 1930s, um, Hermann Goering, uh, believed that it was a genuine Vermeer uh, and eventually acquired it. Uh, I'll put scare quotes around the acquire, uh, uh, but um, he eventually acquired it. Um, fast forward to 1946, the war is over. Um, uh, at least some uh, of the art that the Nazis had um, stolen was repatriated. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, we learned for the first time that Christ at Emmaus was an absolute, total, no doubt about it, forgery. Um, and the way we learned that it was an absolute, total, no doubt about it, forgery, was von Mergerin confessed. And he confessed for a very good reason. He was charged in a Dutch court um, with having um, uh, sold or given away an important part um, of the Dutch patrimony. Um, uh, that was a bad thing to do uh, in the late 1930s through uh, mid-1940s. Uh, he was charged with being a traitor. Um, he wisely um, made the judgment that it is better to be charged as a forger than charged as a traitor. Uh, so at that point, he confessed uh, and was sentenced to a short prison term uh, and actually died um, before serving out um, the uh, sentence. But all of these are questions of um, evidence. So let me just finish by uh, a couple of lessons that come out of this and many other examples. 
Um, what can we learn from the law of evidence um, uh, about uh, evidentiary questions in everyday life? One, um, perhaps the most important question of any evidentiary question is compared to what? So it turns out that compared to what is a big and important question. One of the uh, issues that I talk about in the book and one of the issues that I've been a little bit uh, involved in by being part of a scientific uh, project on this uh, is lie detection. Lie detection interests me uh, not, only because, not only in the context of traditional polygraphs, um, but more recent forms of uh, lie detection uh, technology, uh, which include things like periorbital peri thermography, uh, electroencephalography. Um, I'm always very proud of myself when I can pronounce these things to a larger uh, audience. Uh, and most recently, functional magnetic resonance imaging uh, brain scans. Um, so it turns out that there's a fair amount of skepticism not only about these modern techniques, but there's been skepticism all along uh, in the legal system uh, about lie detection, about polygraphs, despite the fact that there's remarkably less skepticism in the intelligence community and remarkably less skepticism um, among some large number of employers. But it turns out um, that if we don't use uh, lie detection technology, at least for some legal purposes, what's the fallback proposition? At least if we're talking about trials, the fallback proposition is, as it is commonly said, the jury is the lie detector in the courtroom. And although lie detection technology from the 1920s when it was first invented to now is far from perfect, it's a lot better than ordinary people. Um, uh, and um, there is some important research, uh, most of it done by a former UVA psychology professor named Bella DiPaolo. Uh, DiPaolo and her colleagues um, have tested people's ability to determine whether other people are lying. And it turns out that most people, even well-trained people, are scarcely better than random at distinguishing liars from truth-tellers. They rely on uh, folk wisdom about whether people look at you uh, and things of this variety, uh, all to determine whether people are lying or telling the truth. Uh, and it's a lot worse than lie detection. So uh, compared to what? Um, second, um, larger lesson that I hope comes out of the um, book um, and the like um, is weak evidence is still evidence. Um, so we've all heard these phrase, the phrase, there's, no con uh, there's only circumstantial evidence for something. Uh, people who say that there's only circumstantial evidence for something usually are lawyers for guilty defendants. Um, um, uh, but uh, we hear similar kinds of things. Um, there's no concrete evidence. There's no conclusive evidence. There's no direct evidence. Uh, in all of these contexts, 
people who are using these qualifiers implicitly are saying, yes, there's some evidence, but I want you to believe that it's not enough. But again, um, whether it is enough or not depends on what we are going to do with it. Um, how much evidence uh, and how strong the evidence has to be um, turns, uh, is a function of what turns on it. We know and we should know um, that we don't put people in jail unless there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt um, of some proposition. Um, but do you require proof beyond a reasonable doubt um, if you have at least some information um, that uh, your babysitter or your scout leader is a child molester? Uh, under those circumstances, you might want a lot less than pr proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So how much evidence you want um, depends in large part uh, on what turns on it. Um, so, and indeed, um, and I'll finish with this one example, one of the um, big issues now um, that goes back and forth depending on the administration, one of the big issues is what's the burden of proof in university disciplinary proceedings um, for students, char especially students, charged with various forms of sexual misconduct. Um, so, um, for a while, um, uh, during the Obama administration, uh, uh, the Department of Education uh, issuing guidelines under Title IX um, said that it was uh, permissible to have a preponderance of the evidence standard. Um, then, uh, in the Trump administration, the Department of Education um, said um, that if universities wanted instead to have a standard of clear and convincing evidence uh, or even proof beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, they could do so. Uh, and it turns out uh, that this issue was largely an issue that's the modern embodiment of the famous phrase from Blackstone, um, it is better that um, 10 guilty people go free than that one innocent be punished. So then the question is, uh, when we are talking about um, students charged with sexual misconduct on a university campus, what are the consequences of a mistake? Those who would want a very high burden of proof uh, say that being found guilty in a university disciplinary proceeding is so close to being found guilty in a court that we should have the same standard of proof. Uh, that this is so consequential for your future life that it should be once again beyond a reasonable doubt. On the other side, um, often um, uh, advocates on the other side, uh, in particular victims advocates, uh, have said when somebody is wrongfully acquitted, that person remains in our community uh, and because they remain in our community, the consequences of a wrongful acquittal are much more serious than they are in the criminal justice system. Uh, right now, uh, all of this is being um, played out uh, in court on technical issues of administrative law and which uh, agency has the power to do what, um, but it's once again an example of the way that uh, issues of evidence um, uh, are all around us. 
I could go on, but I won't. Um, uh, there are many other examples. I certainly wouldn't mind if you read the book. Um, uh, but better, um, I think, is just to um, think about evidentiary issues uh, that are all around us in public policy and even more in the decisions we make every day. Thank you. <laughs>